we turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. That is our text for today. We're looking at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, and that's going to be sort of our foundational passage, and uh, everything is going to sort of surround the ideas that are introduced here. But I want to read Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6 together. This is what the Word of God says. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately or form of majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's pray one more time. Father, we are humbled as we read what the prophet Isaiah wrote here about the Lord Jesus Christ his death, his suffering, his substitutionary atoning work on behalf of your people. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a proper view of the death of Christ because we know that in the death of Christ spells death for all of the curse of death for all of your people. And so God, we pray, help us to see the death of Christ the atoning work of Christ for what it truly is, perfect atonement for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the atonement is simply the most profound thing that we can talk about in terms of the sacrifice of Christ and the the death of Christ. The death of Christ does not make sense apart from the doctrine of the atonement. The death of Christ, apart from the the biblical context of atonement, well, is uh, an interesting thing that happened for sure. It um, It is a remarkable story. I don't know how many of you remember or if you ever watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, but one of the things that struck me about that movie is that there was really no context to the movie. It sort of just begins with the life of Jesus, and we are, we are brought from one dramatic scene to another until at last we are brought to the very passion of Christ. And there, if you saw the film, you saw unspeakable suffering depicting what Jesus went through. But really, the death of Christ was not done in a vacuum. The death of Christ has a very important theological background, a background that I hope to explore with you today. Now, when we talk about the atonement, 
there are two fundamental ways to speak about the, the atonement of Christ. For some people, the atoning work of Christ represents a very great opportunity. The atonement makes people redeemable. It makes people savable. It means that mankind can be saved. For those folks, the atonement was provided for every person, no exceptions whatsoever, so that every man, woman, and child has the same amount of the atoning blood of Jesus availed to them. And they merely need to exercise their faith in order to trigger the effect of the atonement in their own life. As for those who do not exercise their faith, the atonement remains there, but it is unapplied. It remains forever available, but it, was, but it is not taken advantage of by those who had it available to them. Under this scheme, the atonement is really like an experiment as to how many people will really end up applying the atonement to themselves and taking advantage of the great reservoir of saving blood that God offered through his Son. And a lot of people have held to that position throughout the history of the Christian church. But on the other side, the reformers and those that followed, they saw the atonement not as an experiment, not as an opportunity. They saw the atonement as a specific payment for a specific ransom, for a specific price, for a specific people. The atonement is not an opportunity. The atonement is a certainty, is a certainty. That is, the atonement is the price that God paid in or, through the blood of his son in order to save his people certainly. And one system is largely dependent upon human effort, human volition. The other is rooted in the total sovereignty of God in the fact that God did not make salvation possible, but that God actually made salvation certain for his people. And the debate over the nature of the, and the extent of the atonement has been raging on for centuries. And so what I want to do with us today is I want to look at three different aspects of the atonement. But quickly, I want to point out in this very prophecy of the book of Isaiah, in this prophecy, we have the very fountain, the very basis, the very foundation of all of the, uh, the theology of the atonement in the Bible. Uh, for example, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter points his people to the place where our final hope and our final trust rests, and that is to the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is his text? His text is Isaiah 53. So here is the Apostle Peter pointing us to Isaiah 53, and this is what he says. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. By the way, that goes back to Isaiah 53, 9, verse 22. He committed, excuse me, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return, which goes back to Isaiah 53, verse 7. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That goes back to Isaiah 53, verse 4. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Which, by the way, is very much the way the Apostle Paul talks in Romans 6. So just a very interesting similarity there between Peter and Paul. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. Exact same verbiage is used in Romans 6. Anyway, going on, he says, For by his wounds you are healed. Now there I know you hear the echoes of Isaiah 53, and that is Isaiah 53, verse 5. For you were continually straying like sheep. That is Isaiah 53, verse 6. But you have returned to the shepherd and to the guardian of your soul. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter here, is pointing us back to the one who can shepherd and guard our souls through his redemptive work and through his redemptive cross, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. But he goes back to, back to Isaiah 53 to establish that. Because Isaiah 53, my dear friends, is the high point of the prophecy. It is where we understand how all of the redemption that is spoken of in the book of Isaiah for God's people is going to be accomplished. It is a messianic redemption. It is a messianic prophecy. Turn to Isaiah 32, because in Isaiah 32, verses 1 and 2, there it speaks of Israel's happy future in Zion, in, in their future redemptive a grace that will be extended to them, their salvation, their safety. Matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon from Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 12, and this is the title of the sermon. Safety, fullness, and sweet refreshment in Jesus Christ. Beautiful. And what is his text? Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. Now, verse 2 is very important. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. For Edwards, he saw that Jesus Christ was that shade, that Jesus Christ was that refuge. He was that rock. He was that shelter from the storm of the wrath of God. He was the righteous king who will reign. And in verse 2, our translations, unless you have a King James, which at this point the King James is better, actually reads, each will be. But the literal Hebrew and the literal Septuagint, Greek, is different than that word. The Hebrew is the word ish, which means man, not each, as in English, it's Hebrew, ish, which means a man. And the Greek Septuagint translated it in that way. They used the, they translated the, the Hebrew word ish as anthropos. So there is a man who is coming, who will be for us a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country. Oh, I hope that Jesus Christ is that for you that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Isaiah 53 answers the question, how is this safety going to be provided? 
It is going to be provided through the atoning work of the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. So, three things are in order. Number one, we need to see before we look at the extent of the atonement, meaning to whom does it apply? Because today we're answering the simple but profound question, for whom did Jesus die? Simple and profound question. For whom did Jesus die? And what is the nature of his death? And what did he accomplish by his death? These are the simple questions that we seek to answer. So the very first thing we need to ask is, what is our need of atonement? Why do we need atonement? You know, the word atonement simply means to cover, to cover, to cover over something, i.e. our sin, to cover our sin. And the ESV brings out the, the meaning of this word atonement where it says in Deuteronomy 21.8, I'll read it for you. It says, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt will be atoned for. So atonement is in order to cover guilt, to remove guilt and sin and having blood on your hands as it were. But it also means that when atonement is made, someone is pacified. Someone is appeased. Genesis uh, chapter 32, verse 21. Genesis 32, verse 21. You remember what's going on there. Jacob and Esau are about to reunite. And a long time ago, when Jacob stole Esau's birthright, Esau swore, I will put Jacob to death. So Esau had determined to kill his brother Jacob. And so Jacob, fearing that he would make good on his promise, sends a gift ahead of time, a delegation. And it says in Genesis 32, 21, it says, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him. That's the word atone. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. So there, very early on, in the language of Scripture, the word atonement speaks of appeasement satisfaction, removing the anger of Esau, but more importantly, prefiguring, removing the anger of God, removing the anger of God. And also, Isaiah 47, verse 11, introduces the idea that atonement must be made, and atonement will take away the anger of God, but atonement must be accepted. God has to accept the atonement. And that's why in Isaiah 47, 11, the Babylonians are given this dreadful judgment, this dreadful, dreadful oracle of woe oracle, which is speaking of doom. And it says there, the evil will come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. In other words, no divination will do away with the evil that God is about to bring on Babylon, which speaks of the, the destruction that he would bring on the nation Babylon. And it says, and disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. Destruction about which you, you do not know will come on you suddenly. So there they had no ability to atone 
to appease, and that's what it means here. There's no ability to pacify God. God would not accept their atonement. You remember years back? I don't know anything about golf. You take me out on a golf course, and uh, I'll hold your drink. I can't golf to save my life. Last time I tried, I threw my back out so bad I couldn't preach next Sunday. But I know a superstar when I hear one, and Tiger Woods is certainly a superstar of golf, right? Or at least he was. But do you remember what happened to Tiger Woods? Certainly made the headlines. There was a whole press conference with with, uh, reporters that were awaiting his apology for what he had done and his repeated infidelity towards his wife. And I'll never forget, as I sat there watching the press conference, Tiger Woods said to the media, for what I've done, I am sorry. I have a lot to atone. But see, the sad news is that Tiger Woods, in a million billion years, can never atone for what he's done. But the good news for Tiger Woods, as Brett Hume I don't know if you guys saw this, but Brett Hume on the news told Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, you need to turn away from the Buddhist religion and turn to the Christian faith. You will find no forgiveness in Buddhism. Turn to the Christian faith and find forgiveness for your sins. He said that on Fox News. Brett Hume was right. Only in Jesus Christ can Tiger Woods find the necessary atonement in order to make propitiation for his sin. And apart from that, there will be no forgiveness. There never be, God's anger will never be averted for the things that he did. Now I want to take you a little bit deeper. Turn to Leviticus 16, a little deeper into the theology of atonement, where it comes from. Jesus understood this. The apostles understood this. The whole New Testament is written in light of this. But the theology of atonement is rooted maybe above all in the day of atonement itself. This is God teaching the people of Israel the greatest lessons about atonement himself. God is revealing through Moses what must happen in order for atonement to be made. Number one, atonement had to be made for the priest. So Aaron in verses 11 through 14 had to sacrifice for himself. He had to take a bull and sacrifice it on the altar. He had, to, he had to cleanse himself. He had to cleanse his household or else he could not proceed with the atonement of the people. Secondly, there were two goats involved that were very important in this day of atonement. The first goat, according to verses 15 and 19, was a goat to be slaughtered. Its blood was to be shed and spilt. It was a sin offering for the congregation of Israel. It was a sacrificial goat. And the second goat was the goat of scapegoat that Aaron was to lay his hands on. He would lay his hands on this goat and transfer the guilt of the people to the goat. So here is an innocent goat that hasn't done anything to anybody And he is made to bear the curse of the whole congregation. And the goat was sent out into the wilderness, sent out into barren desert, where it would later die, bearing the guilt outside of the camp of the covenant people of God. Now, these two goats are very, very important because they they are the foundation of of the theology of what we call propitiation and expiation. 
This is what happens in the Old Testament when a bull or a goat is sacrificed. Propitiation and expiation is made. This is our life, brothers and sisters. As Christians, we live our whole life based on expiation. And some of us, maybe, I've never even heard that word. Your whole Christian life depends on it. Expiation speaks of God's willingness to remove your sin, to take away, just like the goat would bear the sin upon itself and then remove it from the camp, take it away. That's what we want, right? God, take the guilt away. Take the sin away. And also propitiation. Propitiation is symbolized by the first goat that was taken into the holy place and slaughtered. Its blood would be spilt and sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was a way of depicting and typifying and symbolizing that the wrath and the anger of God had been removed. Through atonement, sin is removed and wrath is removed. The Bible says God is angry at the wicked all day long. He is angry at the things that Islam is doing right now in Iraq. The slaughtering of hundreds of people lining up, as I told you before, lining up the streets with decapitated bodies. This is happening in our world. I know that we live in America and we're a bit desensitized to the reality of the cruelty of life that we're really in, but that's what's going on right now. I watched a video. I saw a man executed in the public square with children dancing around as they're executing this man for leaving Islam. This is the type of world that we're in. What can make, because God is very angry at that, how can God go from being angry at that to being appeased only through the atoning work of Christ. Islam's only hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's their only hope. But what else was God seeking in the atonement? God was also seeking reconciliation and redemption. God did not care if people went through the motions took their sacrifices to the temple. He did not care if they gathered together in holy assembly. He wanted real redemption, real reconciliation. This might transfer over to us today in our modern context. God doesn't care if you go to church and lift your hands and do the whole thing and come up here and play worship and be on the worship team, but yet you're sleeping with your girlfriend. You're living with your boyfriend. You're not even a believer but yet the elders let you into the membership role and you have no life of Christ in you whatsoever. God hates false worship. It's called perfunctory worship. It is fake. It is false. Our God is not fake. Our God is not false. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Let me read this to you. Amos Amos is so so angry and so upset at the false religiosity of the Jews at this point. He speaks in the most sarcastic way imaginable. He commands them, enter Bethel, which was a shrine outside of Jerusalem that they would make uh, sacrifices on. He says, enter Bethel and transgress there. He says, in Gilgal, he says, multiply your transgressions. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning, basically, if you'd like. 
Go ahead and bring your sacrifices. He says, tithe every three days if you want. He says, offer your, offer your thank offering and offer your free will offering. Oh, come in here and say you did this of your own free will. God didn't even ask for this sacrifice. Oh, but you gave it anyway. But the rest of your life is completely bankrupt. And it's fake and false religion. Why? Because there is no redemption. There is no reconciliation to God. The atonement can be made, but if there's no inward change, it doesn't apply to the worshiper. And that's why Amos goes on to say four different times, Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Isn't that amazing? You can be in the house of worship and not be with the Lord. <laughs> and that's why the, the, the whole of Christian religion, the whole of true Christianity is to have an authentic heart, as Pastor Chris was talking about, to have a pure conscience before God and man, to walk with him in the light as he is in the light, to walk in truth. We need redemption. Now, I want you to turn with me to two scriptures. First, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Because I want to just, I don't just want to analyze the need, okay? We need atonement. God, help us. But I also want you to, I also want to show you that God has provided perfect atonement through His Son. When we stop to consider our need of atonement, what the Old Testament language of atonement focuses on, we see our deep need for all of our sins to be removed. We see our deep need for the wrath of God to be appeased. And the author of Hebrews brings all of this marvelously together. He focuses in on the Old Testament imagery we just read about in Leviticus. The imagery, the typology, the symbolism, the Old Testament sacrifices, all of them are pointing forward to Christ. Verse 11, Hebrews 9:11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So Jesus doesn't go into a physical, literal, earthly tabernacle temple. He entered into the heavenly tabernacle. He went into the very presence of God. He says, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all. Unlike the Old Testament priests that had to do it over and over every year, they had to make atonement over and over, and it never purified the worshiper. But he says he has obtained eternal redemption. See, eternal redemption only comes through Christ. He says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifers sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctify the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, if the bulls and the goats had an external effect, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There is a perfect sacrifice provided for us. Perfect expiation. Your conscience perfectly cleansed. Your sin taken away, expiated, removed once and for all. And in Romans chapter 3 now, not only therefore does the blood of Christ provide for our need of cleansing by removing our sin, removing our false religion, 
but his blood removes the danger of the wrath of God. Man's greatest dilemma is the wrath of God. It is not a bad economy. It is not a liberal president. It is not gay marriage. It is not social decay. It is not cultural, you know, postmodernity, relativistic thought. It is not socialism. It is not communism. It is not Islam. It is not disease. It is not AIDS. It is not any of those things. No. The worst storm coming is the storm of the wrath of God. That's why Edward saw in Isaiah 32, shelter from the storm. Jesus Christ, our refuge, our true refuge. Look at Romans 3.21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed publicly, another big word coming, as a propitiation. Propitiation. Everyone in this church needs to know, and even though we're missing a lot of members here today, uh, Everyone in this church needs to know the word propitiation and be able to define it to one another and say, so at any time, just come up to somebody at random and say, what's propitiation? Because <laughs> I want you to be able to say it is removing the wrath of God because there's nothing more dreadful than the wrath of God and there's nothing more glorious than removing the wrath of God. There's nothing better than to know God's anger has been averted. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That means God did not judge people utterly for the sins that they'd committed under the old covenant. David was allowed to live because he had faith in this future redemption that was coming, that was coming. God also reconciles us. He not only redeems us, he not only forgives us, but he reconciles us, and we'll get to redemption. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Reconciliation is God bringing us near. This is what the atonement does. It takes a people previously estranged previously alienated from God, previously unwelcomed in God's company. And he welcomes us in. He takes us into his home through the atoning work of Christ. Perfect atonement results in perfect reconciliation with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. And you might say, but yeah, there it says reconciliation is for the whole world. How do you deal with that, Mr. Calvinist? We'll get to that. I'm saving that for the end. The good part for the end. No, I'm joking. This is the good part. But I just want you to see 
everything that was required under the old covenant, everything that the law demanded of us, Christ has provided. He has satisfied it all. And, as I said, he also provides for us perfect redemption. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 again. Hebrews chapter 9 brings this out beautifully. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, Hebrews 9.15, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that's the old covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance or the eternal inheritance. In other words, we are redeemed. We have redemption of our transgressions precisely because of the perfect atoning work of Christ. To be redeemed means, as we talked about in Sunday seminary, to be re- in Sunday school, to be redeemed speaks about being bought back, to be purchased from some form of captivity or bondage. The bondage that Paul talks about in Timothy, those that he says, Perhaps God will grant them repentance, escaping the snare of the devil to whom they have been enslaved their whole lives to do his bidding. People are enslaved to the devil and do his bidding, and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. Here is perfect atonement on display. And notice, too, uh, beginning to even look that way in verse 9, excuse me, here in Hebrews 9, already beginning to look towards that way. Who is this redemption for? As he goes on to say there in verse 15, those who have been called. They are the ones that will inherit eternal an, an eternal inheritance. They may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. There's so much that can be said about all of this, brothers and sisters. But let me just read to you John Murray, his little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, that I plug over and over and over for us. It's a little book. It's about 200 pages at the most. And it's a book that you ought to read every year. Every year, I think you should read through Redemption Accomplished. You will be rock solid as a Christian. It's like Piper says, this book is like iron to the bones of your soul. It will strengthen your inner man like almost nothing else. John Murray says, ransom presupposes some kind of bondage or captivity. And he says, and redemption, therefore, implies that from which the ransom secures us. Just as sacrifice is directed to the needs created by our guilt, propitiation to the need that arises from the wrath of God, and reconciliation to the need that arises from alienation from God, so redemption is directed to the bondage to which our sin had consigned us. We were bound, enslaved, and that's why... Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law. He redeems us from the power of sin. You know, it's only the atoning work of Christ that makes sense out of passages like this. For the wages of sin is death. Because of the atoning work of Christ, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, 
because of the atonement, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. The atonement is the answer to everything that we need. To everything that we, that we need. It is totally sufficient. It is totally efficacious. Now, let's focus in on the efficacious nature of the atonement. The extent of the atonement. And for that, I go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 11 this time says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Speaking of the suffering servant, the anguish of his soul. This is speaking of Jesus. Read Isaiah 53 with no one else in mind except Jesus. Jesus had anguish of soul. He says he'll see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many the many as he will bear their iniquities there we begin to see the application of the atonement more clearly who does he justify well he justifies a, a group that is disclosed here as the many whose sin does he bear he bears the many's iniquity and that's why the extent of of the atonement has to be carefully defined as extending to those for whom Christ died. This is a totally different way of looking at the atonement. The atonement is not God's wish that some would believe, that some might get saved. No, the atonement is part of the Trinitarian pact that he made between the Son and the Father and the Spirit of God from eternity past to save a people for himself through Jesus Christ. You see this pact everywhere in Scripture. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus said, Father, I have accomplished the purpose for which you sent me. He have accomplished the work. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, what do you see? You see the Trinity working in perfect succession, perfect harmony, perfect unity, so that Father, Son, and Spirit are choosing and redeeming and sealing the same people. The same people. The Father chooses, the Son redeems through His blood, and the Spirit seals for the day of redemption. This is a Trinitarian salvation that we are in. Alec Mater, who is a renowned Old Testament scholar, he speaks of the suffering servant of Isaiah, and he says, The death of the servant is the intersection point of all space and time, from the north to the south, east and west, from past, present, and future. The divine hand gathers all of the sins of all the sinners that he proposes to save and personally conducts them to one solemn and holy spot to the head of the servant. God himself, like Aaron, laid his hand on his son and transferred our guilt. So as Isaiah says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah makes clear is that those for whom the servant Lord dies, he also provides a perfect justification. 
a perfect justification. So in other words, the atonement does not just make man savable. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not saying salvation is now possible. No, he paid an actual payment. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom, as a ransom, to pay the ransom price for God's chosen people, God's elect people. Now look with me at 1 Peter, just two verses in Peter that are very important. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, when Jesus died, he died to take us home. He did not die so that we can find our way there. He did not die to find out maybe someone will get saved and someone will end up in heaven. No. According to Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust. And then the purpose clause here is very important. So that. That means here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Here's the rationale so that he might bring us to God. One day, if you are in Christ, Jesus is going to bring you to God. He's going to bring you into his mansion, as he says, into his home, into his palace, where there are many rooms. You believe in God, believe also in him. He will bring you home as his adopted sons and daughters. And... You say, yeah, but it doesn't say anything here that he will bring just us to God. Maybe he will bring everybody to God. Maybe Rob Bell is right. Love wins in the end, and God saves every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, who has ever walked the face of the earth, no exceptions whatsoever, which would, of course, mean that everybody who is in hell today would have to be taken out of hell and put into heaven. But turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. If we've fail to see the context here, Peter reminds us who he's talking to. He is not talking to just anybody. He addresses his epistle specifically to God's elect. And so we live in a culture, and I understand that, and I understand what you're up against, that you have a doctrine of God's sovereignty that doesn't make it easy to talk at the many Christian you know, gatherings that you may go to, even gatherings at work, gatherings in your family, gatherings in your community. I have a bunch of Christian neighbors. They like to talk to me about the Lord. They know I'm a pastor. And they oftentimes, as soon as they get around me, they want to start talking about religion. I don't know, maybe it has to do with the fact that I'm a pastor. But they want to talk about Christianity. And I know that I believe what the Bible teaches and that this doctrine is not very popular, but who cares? It's biblical. Listen to what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Or another translation, who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Remember, the word foreknowledge does not mean God knew ahead of time some people would believe in him. The word foreknowledge literally means that God entered into a covenant, intimate relationship with you before time began. God already decided to save you, to redeem you, to commit himself to you. How? 
by uniting you to his son, by gluing you to Jesus Christ in eternity past. He decided, he decreed, he made the decision before all time that I am going to put these people in my son so that when he comes, he will, he will make a perfect atonement for their sins and bring my people home. And so the atonement applies to them. There are some really logical problems with saying that the atonement applies to everyone. Hopefully we've established atonement means actual forgiveness, actual removal of sin, actual removal of the wrath of God. But if everyone has their sin atoned for, why is it that God has not actually redeemed them, actually saved them, actually removed the wrath of God? Some people say, oh no, there will be a double payment. They will pay now and they will pay. Jesus paid for them one time and they will pay for their sins again later. No, there was one payment for the sins of those who God aims to redeem for his people. God has promised to give his son a special people. How do you know that God has chosen you? What an incredible thought. We say this humbly. We don't say this with a prideful, sneering heart. We say it humbly and broken. It's saying, oh God, that I would be among your elect. How humbling. What makes me to differ from my neighbor? I was just as blasphemous. I was just as perverted and evil, hateful. I was just as murderous in my heart. What makes me to differ from them? Why would you ever set your love on me? Why would you make me part of your bride and not other people part of your bride? It's so humbling. It brings you to your knees when you think about it. But you know what the Apostle Paul says repeatedly? If in fact Jesus died for you, then the result will be, without question, that you will die spiritually. Look at Romans chapter 6. We'll, close, we'll bring things to a close there. Romans chapter 6 makes it abundantly clear that if Jesus died for you, then you too will experience a death. And so if you see people living for themselves and dying in that condition, you know they never died spiritually. They never died to the old man. They never died to self, which is clear evidence that Jesus did not die for them or else they would have died to self. Romans 6, 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, you see that? If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So in other words, if we died with him, we will raise with him infallibly. And it says, it says here, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Why? Because we were united to him. That's why. The old self is crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. 
Now, if we have died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. If Jesus took your sin to the cross, that means he will take your body into heaven. That's what it means. This is a perfect substitutionary atoning work of Christ. Atonement is effective substitution. What is atonement? Effective substitution on behalf of God's people. That is what it is. That's why Paul can say, the love of Christ controls me. I he said, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. But who's the all that he's talking about? He makes it very abundantly clear. He died for all so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. See, if Jesus died and rose on your behalf, then you will die. It will happen. His atonement will effect a perfect reconciliation and a perfect redemption. What does the atonement teach us? The atonement teaches us that salvation is of the Lord. The atonement teaches us that there is nothing like Tiger Woods. We can never atone for ourselves. No matter how much we go to church, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we sing Christian songs and watch clean Christian movies, it will never make atonement for your sin. You can watch Veggie Tales from the time you're born to the time you die, which might drive you insane on the way there, but it doesn't make you any more Christian. It doesn't make you Christian to listen to Christian radio. It doesn't make you a Christian to watch Christian television or Christian movies and to speak, speak Christian language. One of the biggest dangers in the church is children being raised in Christian homes and being raised as Pharisees because they know all the right things to do. They know exactly what the Christian pastor and the Christian mommy and daddy and all the good Christians want to hear, and they can say it and repeat it, and they sound you know, right, but inside there's no salvation. I'll never forget standing next to an old pastor of mine, standing outside of the walls of the church, and he just got done preaching, and a young man came up to him from the youth group, probably 17 years old. He came up trembling, physically trembling, and said, Pastor, I, I have something to tell you. I know that I've been in this church since I was in kindergarten, and I've been through all the youth groups and all the youth camps and everything, and I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian, and I don't want to walk with God. And he walked away sobbing and weeping. See, friends, salvation is of the Lord, and that's why if you don't want to see your kids go away sobbing and weeping, I'm not saying it depends on you, but what I am saying is sob and weep at the feet of God, pleading Him for your children. Our, our prayer meetings should be filled with tears if we really believe that our prayers work in conjunction with the sovereignty of God to accomplish His sovereign purpose. We should be pleading God Please have mercy on me, my family, my children. They are in your hands and we are at your mercy. And we plead that the blood of Jesus Christ would cover them. Have mercy on them, O oh God. 